Testament book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 12. Find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke in your New Testament. We've got a very weighty text set before us this morning because we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12 a little bit more closely. So Luke chapter 12, and we're going to try to understand one of the probably more confusing and misunderstood verses in the Bible, and I think it's that way for a couple of reasons. Now, one of the reasons that I think it's so confusing is because Jesus makes a distinction here between blaspheming himself and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, meaning that if you blaspheme Jesus, forgiveness is possible. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, no forgiveness is possible. Now, if we rightly understand the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one in essence, that's what the word Trinity literally means, it means tri-unity, how is it that blaspheming the Son will allow a person to receive some sense of mercy? But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you have no hope of pardon. There seems to be a contradiction of thought when we think about these things, and so I think that's probably one of the reasons that it can be kind of confusing. If there is one thing that's probably been filled with controversy throughout church, church history, and yet at the same time is absolutely indispensable to the Christian faith, it has to be the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, if any of you are online, I don't know how many of you guys follow who I follow, but... There is a big uproar right now in regards to the Trinity, in terms of the Son submitting to the Father. There are some that argue that it's from eternality, which almost makes Jesus a little lower than the Father, and some are saying, no, it's in His humanity. And so there is this huge theological debate going on right now on the Internet, even today, about the Trinity. But at the same time, there is nothing that I'm aware of that when you try to explain it or you try to come up with some sort of physical illustration to describe it, when you get to talk about the Trinity, you are usually coming very close to stepping off the cliff of heresy. But we would confess the historic Orthodox understanding of the Trinity, and in that God exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet they are one in essence. And so, how do we make sense of this text in light of our limited understanding of that great doctrine? But then I think there's another thing that's misunderstood about this, and I think that's because it has such a definite finality to it. There's no mistaking and no confusion here that to do this particular sin is to exclude yourself from the kingdom of God. It's to invite God's righteous and divine wrath upon yourself. And it is to cut yourself off from all the blessings and all the promises and the inheritance that Jesus Christ alone can provide in himself. And so as Christians who want absolutely nothing to do with any of that, I think that we can become somewhat distraught if we understand these verses incorrectly. We can start to worry a bit and and wonder if we ourselves have indeed committed the unpardonable sin, as what this is commonly called. We ask ourselves, what is it 
And then the second question we ask is, have I done it? Right? And so my hope and my prayer for you this morning is that as we go through this, that you come to understand this text a little bit more clearly. And thus, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a greater assurance and a greater confidence in the salvation that you have through Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian who is trying your best to walk with the Lord and you're sitting there wondering if you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and thus cut yourself off from any hope of heaven, today I want you to walk out of here encouraged. All right? So I want to read our text together this morning and I want us to read all 12 verses again because this is really a package deal uh, that we didn't get to last week and I'm going to show you why that is in just a little bit. But if you're there in Luke chapter 12 and you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I want to invite you to do so. We're starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 12. God's inspired and inerrant and holy word says this. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another... He began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And here's our verses for this morning in verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We just pray that it might comfort us and nourish us, exhort us and encourage us this day. God, help us to learn more about you, and thus worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we just thank you for this time, and we thank you for your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It was on this day, July 17th, 1674, it was some 342 years ago, that a child was born in Southampton, England, that would grow up to be a man who would have a deep and lasting impact, not only on the church, but for the entire world for that matter. This man showed to have an absolute peculiar genius at a very early age. For example, at the age of four years old, he was learning Latin. By the age of nine, He then studied Greek. By the age of 11, 
He decided just to take up French so he could be able to converse with his new neighbors who were refugees from France. And so he learned French. But by the age of 13, he took up Hebrew so he could understand the scriptures more clearly and more plainly. So if you count that with his native tongue of English, that's five languages that he had mastered by the age of 13. He was a prolific writer. He wrote nearly 30 theological treatises and books. He wrote an essay on psychology, on astronomy, and on philosophy. He composed three volumes of sermons. He wrote the first ever children's hymnal. And he wrote a textbook on logic that served as a standard work on the subject for generations. Benjamin Franklin would end up publishing some of his works, and John Wesley acknowledged him as being an absolute genius. But what he's probably most remembered for and revered for is his work in poetry. But it was more than just poetry in and of itself. It was poetry like no other. Words like this, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at God's command and all the stars obey. Or maybe you're familiar with when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. But surely, if you've never heard of any of those, and I'm sorry for you if you have not, but you have heard this around Christmas time when we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. You see, this man that was born on this day in 1674 is known as the father of the English hymnody, of which we have the benefit of in our pews here this morning, because he is credited with writing over 750 hymns, and his name was Isaac Watts. But what motivated Isaac Watts to write so many soul-stirring hymns? Well, Isaac Watts, he wrote about it in his later years when he said this. He said, quote, To see the dull indifference, the negligent and the thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of the whole assembly, while the psalm is upon their lips, might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of his inward religion, end quote. In other words, what Isaac Watts was lamenting was the fact that so many people, while they're singing the Psalms, appeared to show so little zeal and so little life in their worship that he suspected that others might begin to question the legitimacy of their conversion. That the people that he saw in his day who sang the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs might not exactly be genuine in their faith or even worse they might be hypocrites. You see, this is exactly what Jesus has been addressing in our text since the beginning of chapter 12, when he began to teach the disciples, warning them against hypocrisy. 
You see, Jesus had just indisputably and irrefutably healed a man who was mute, cast out a demon in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, and that man began to speak and it amazed the crowds. But instead of being all in awe of Christ and conceding that his power came from God, the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they did just the opposite. Incredulously, they acted, they actually accused Jesus of performing the miracle by the power of Satan. And as a result, Jesus then turns and pronounces a series of woes upon them, a divine condemnation. It was an expression of judgment. But they had become so fixed in their resentment and animosity of Jesus that they actually ramped up their hostility towards them, and they started to look for ways that they might try and trap him. And so as the crowds gathered to, around Jesus to the tune of tens of thousands of people, he then turns his focus towards his disciples in Luke chapter 12, and he warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But we cannot read this and think that this is just an isolated warning to the disciples. This is a standing caution to the church in every place and every time, and this one as well. It's here to remind us that hypocrisy is alive and well, and we should take note, and we all should be on guard against hypocrisy. We should all be diligently and frequently looking at the state of our souls before Almighty God. We should be abhorring feigned devotion. We should be constantly looking at our ways and our affections to see if there is anything supplanting our devotion to God. J.C. Ryle wrote this about self-inquiry in his book, Practical Religion. He said this, Very likely, you are sitting at ease. You are content with little faith and little repentance and little grace and little sanctification, and you are unconsciously shrinking back from extremes. You will never be a happy Christian at this rate, even if you were to live to the age of Methuselah. Change your plan. If you love life and would see good days without delay, come out boldly and act decidedly. Be thorough, thorough, very thorough in your Christianity and set your face fully towards the sun. Lay aside every weight of sin that so easily entangles you. Strive to get near to Christ. Abide in Him. Cleave to Him and sit at His feet like Mary and take the full drinks of drafts from the fountain of life. And so I'll ask you this morning, is there anything that is hindering you from true, unhindered worship and devotion to God? Are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ or are you stagnating? Are you running the race in such a way that you are winning the prize? Are you worshiping the Lord with your lips only, or is your heart far from Him? These are questions that only you can answer within your own heart. But it's not as if Jesus leaves the disciples and us without a roadmap away from hypocrisy. In fact, if you've been tracking with me over the last couple of weeks, Jesus has given us a distinctly Trinitarian answer as to how we can avoid hypocrisy. It hasn't been so easy due to the schedule that we've had here with, with me and stuff, but it is laid out here in our text with three essential 
non-negotiable obligations that will keep you and me from being hypocrites. The first one that we saw was found in verses 4 and 5, and it says that we should fear God. It's very basic, right? Fear God. Fearing the Lord is the very foundation of knowledge, according to Proverbs 1.7. Philippians 2.12 says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And 1 Peter 1.7 says that we are to conduct ourselves in fear during our time of stay on the earth. And if you remember... What we said the fear of the Lord is, is basically reverence and awe. And what that means is you take God seriously because of who he is and what he's done for you. You find your greatest happiness and and in your greatest joy in obeying God because you have the utmost respect and regard for him. You fear him because you have the utmost admiration for him because he is your heavenly father who cares for you more than many sparrows who do not escape his notice. So the first thing that we can do to avoid hypocrisy in our lives is to live in the fear of the Lord. The second one we saw was to confess the Son. We saw that in verses 8 through 9. Again, very basic for us here. And so to deny Jesus Christ in this life, to fail to confess him before men and submit your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ is the absolute height of folly. It's to bring on a most assured and certain judgment in the life to come. There's no option for you to be able to stand in in the presence of God except to confess Jesus Christ before men. So, if we are faithful to confess Christ before men, and if we are bold enough to stand up for Jesus Christ, even if no one else will, He will stand up for us later. So, in order to avoid hypocrisy, you need to fear God. And then, you need to confess the Son. And then, in our text today, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So, in verse 10 of our text today, if you look there with me, It says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, notice first of all, that it says that if you speak a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Now, we see this with the chief among sinners, right? The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, uh, verses 12 through 13, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Right here in verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And even some of the Jews who acted in ignorance in Acts chapter 2 are granted mercy because they eventually repented. But we know this to be true in our own practical experience because by not being with Christ, we were against him. Every Christian in this room is a converted blasphemer. We all at one time rebelled against God and his laws. We all rejected his reign and rule in our, and his, his reign and rule in our lives. We all shook our fists at God at one time and said, I will have my way. And I can tell you, From my personal experience as a young man, as a professing atheist, as a teenager, I thought I had all the answers. I thought I had all the arguments down. I I viciously defended against God to my Christian friends. 
I denied God. I cursed him with my words and my life. But God showed me mercy. God granted me mercy. I was a blasphemer myself, and all of us were at one time. Titus 3.3, it describes our state in this way when it says, For we also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 adds to that list of our sins by saying, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But listen clearly to this part in verse 11. Such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. God is in the business of redeeming sinners. Amen? This is a Baptist church. You can say amen out loud. It's okay. And the scriptures are complete and rather replete with confirming this statement. We have the testimony of David, who was guilty of adultery and dishonesty and even murder when he took Bathsheba as his own and he killed Uriah the Hittite. We have the testimony of the woman whose sins were many in Luke seven forty-seven. We've got the prodigal son in Luke 15. We've got Simon Peter's triple denial and profanity against Christ in Luke 22. We have Paul's pre-conversion murderous persecution of Christians in Acts 9.1. The whole Bible, for that matter, is a manifesto for us to the fact that God is in the business of saving sinners like you and me through Jesus Christ. How many sins has the Lord forgiven us? Oh my, if you would count your sins. And think about how many sins, how many times we've just sinned against the Lord. Could we number them? But yet there is an extraordinary sin. There is a sin that is an exception, and it says that in the second part of our verse. But he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So we have to ask this question in our understanding of the Trinity. Why is blaspheming against the Spirit a more heinous crime than blaspheming Christ. Why or how is it that you can blaspheme Christ and receive pardon, but if you blaspheme the Spirit, you receive eternal judgment? Would we say that the majesty of the Spirit is greater than Christ? Or would we say that the Holy Spirit is, is greater, uh, of greater importance in the Godhead of Christ? We would have to answer that question with a firm and resolute no. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3 says, God, after, spoke, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Verse 3 right here. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. And listen to Paul. 
in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Listen to how he describes the spirit that dwells in you as a believer in Jesus Christ. He says this, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised him Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So which is it? Is it the spirit of God? Is it the spirit of Christ? Is it the Holy Spirit that dwells in you as a believer? John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, And he will keep my word. My father will love him. And listen to this. We will come to him and make our abode with him. As a believer, this is a remarkable truth that the Trinity has come to live inside you. That's amazing. That's a whole nother sermon. But for the sake of understanding our text this morning, the scripture is clear. We cannot absolutely assign to the Holy Spirit a greater seat in the community of the Trinity. There's not a hierarchy where you have the Holy Spirit at the top and then the Father and Son are at the bottom. So how do we understand this? How do we make sense of this? The answer is that it has to do more with man than it does with God. Meaning that it has to do with illumination. It has more to do with man's understanding and comprehension of God. You see, to to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to deliberately reject the truth of God in your heart, while the truth is clearly known with your head. It's, It's to see the clear evidences and the work of the Holy Spirit and still be determined in your will to reject Him. Daniel Doriani defined blasphemy of the Spirit this way in his commentary. He said, Blasphemy against the Spirit is the sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus as the very agent of evil, despite full knowledge of His work and in the face of the Spirit's full testimony of Him. And so, if we try to wrap our minds around this sin, is why it's so grievous and so heinous, It's not because the Holy Spirit sits on the top of the Trinity and He possesses some greater nobility or stateliness than the Father or the Son. But it's because the person who rejects the Spirit and blasphemes the Holy Spirit cannot be excused on a plea of ignorance. And we have that illustrated for us in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. How do you explain a confusing text in the Bible? You go to another confusing text in the Bible, right? Hebrews 6, 4 says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of this age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, and put Him to open shame. You see, when you've been given all these things, When you've clearly seen the mercies of God, 
When you've clearly seen the fruits of the Spirit work in your and other people's lives, and you've heard the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your conclusion is then that Christianity is wicked and deceitful, there is nothing left for you except a terrifying expectation of judgment. Because in the context of what we're reading here, and in light of chapter 11, that's what these scribes and Pharisees were doing. They clearly saw a man able, who was mute, and now he's all, all of a sudden he's able to speak. They saw the change in the, man, in the man. They heard Christ speak with their own ears, and they attributed the work to Satan. William Hendrickson wrote of these Pharisees and scribes, he said, For penitence, they substituted hardening. For confession, they substituted plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, for an adulterer, for a murderer, there's hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But when a man becomes so hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the Spirit, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. We can easily look to Judas and see that he fills this category as well. Judas here heard the clearest presentation of the gospel that any man could ever possibly hear because he heard them from the lips of Jesus himself. Judas witnessed miracle after miracle by the power of the Spirit and at the hands of Jesus Christ. Judas indisputably saw the fruits of salvation in the lives of many, and he heard them respond in praise to God. And yet, even with all that illumination, Judas rejected Jesus, and he blasphemed the Spirit, and he betrayed our Lord for a mere 30 shekels of silver. So, if you're a believer here this morning... And you're thinking to yourself, man, have I committed the unpardonable sin? You haven't. (laughs) Because to blaspheme the Spirit is a final, hardened, deliberate rejection of the work of the Spirit, despite what you know is true. And the fact that you're even concerned about it shows that you have not jumped off the cliff and blasphemed the Spirit. So how do we avoid hypocrisy? You need to fear God. You need to confess the Son. And you need to not blaspheme and reject the Spirit. But just as Jesus issued a call to fear God and then gave us promises that God cares for us more than many sparrows, and He had issued a call to confess Jesus before men and then gave us a promise that He will confess us before the angels of God, He gives us a promise that the Spirit will teach us what to say if we are put on public trials. It says in verse 11 and 12, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, you need to understand that this is not a call for pastors and teachers and preachers to jump up in a pulpit on a Sunday morning and just wing it without preparation and any study. That's not what this is talking about. That to do so is to take this verse out of context for the many people who don't want to study to show themselves approved and apply themselves to the diligent study of the Word of God. 
But this is a comfort to those who will fear God and confess Christ and honor the Spirit that public, confrontational, and severe trials will not shatter your faith and you will say what the Spirit wants you to say and give you an opportunity for testimony about Him. Because notice that it says, when they bring you before the synagogues, not if. And so if we can imagine these disciples, their eyes had to be as wide as saucers when he, heard, when he said this. Because it is as if Jesus is preparing them for certain persecution. So for these disciples, there's going to be a certain expectation that this is going to occur. But there will be a blessed result. Because Peter wrote about these trials and tribulations that would come our way in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, when he said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the important verses. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, it may be to found to be result in praise and glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a promise from our Lord that we need not worry about what we are going to say we are, when we are confronted about Jesus Christ. Surely, we need to prepare, and we need to be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within us, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. But when it does happen, and we are confronted about Christ in various trials, we should do so in the trust that the Spirit will help us to do it, and as a result, be confident that we are saved. This is the road away from hypocrisy and towards genuine spiritual courage. It comes from confessing our sins and fearing God more than we fear people, knowing that we can trust the watchful care of our Heavenly Father, It comes from confessing Christ before men and knowing that Jesus will rise up and defend us and be our advocate at the final judgment. And it comes from trusting in the Spirit, believing with a sincere heart, and depending on His help when we are confronted with various trials. Beloved, these are precious promises that our Lord gives to us. Are you going about your life in the fear of the Lord? Are you ready to confess Christ before men and looking to have gospel conversations? Are you trusting in the Holy Spirit and walking in dependence of Him? If the answer to any of those questions is no, then let us repent. Let us pour out our heart to Him and look to Christ for help in our time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these promises that you promised to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who would dwell in us and help us in our time of need. Father, we reflect on how you are a loving 
Father, and how valuable we are in your sight. That you found us worthy to purchase us with the precious blood of your Son. Father, as we see the chaos in this world and we hear of wars and rumors of wars, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us us to have an eager expectation of the return of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.